When I was in middle school, I was outside with a few friends one day, and we were playing some football before school started. And we had just enough room to play between a few of the buildings. I tell you what, me and my friend Sam, we were putting on a clinic out there against the other team. He was always getting these great passes to me in our little makeshift end zone. And then as time started to wind down, the bell was going to ring any minute, I headed out for one last score. So I cut left into the end zone. I blew past my defender, and Sam let the ball fly. And I jumped as high as I could to catch that ball. And I watched as it hit the tips of my fingers and fell behind me. I was disappointed, too. But the reason I remember this is because after I missed that catch, the ball flew behind me and right through a classroom window. And when that happened, I did what I think just about any kid would do. I took off running as fast as I could, and I didn't look back. But eventually, I stopped running, because I realized there's no getting out of this. There are too many witnesses. So I did the next thing that a lot of kids would do. I started thinking of excuses, like, sure, sure, I was the last one to touch the ball, and Sam was a fine quarterback. But the ball was clearly overthrown, as demonstrated, in my mind, by this incredible leap that I had made for it. So it's not like it was my fault. Sure, we were playing in an area that we probably shouldn't have been, but why would they install such weak glass in a place that was clearly suitable for sports? The point is, I had a lot of these excuses in my pocket. And in the end, there was a lot of finger pointing that went on when I should have just owned up to my mistake in the first place. And rest assured, my dad came and made sure that I owned up to my mistake there at school. But the truth is, this isn't something that just kids do. And I'm not talking about breaking windows. I'm talking about the fact that many of us make excuses in life. And while there are times where our excuses are legitimate, there are many times when they're not. Uh, there are times when we make excuses uh, to justify some wrong that we have done, or a mistake that we've made, or to shift the blame to someone else when things don't go the right way. And one area that many people tend to do this is when they sin against God. And although there is no excuse for sin, we sure... We sure try our best at times to find one, don't we? Because there are times that we don't want to, want to own up to our sins. But look, we expect that of the world, right? Of unbelievers? Oh, of course, they're going to be full of excuses. Of course, they're not going to own up to their sin against God. We aren't surprised when this is true of the world. But it's sad when it's true of God's people. And many times it is. So we're going to talk about some of these things together this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you would like to use one of those, you can turn to page 912. Page 912. Romans chapter 3. And here we're going to find the Apostle Paul addressing... Some of the questions, the accusations and excuses that people have for their sin and for their unbelief. You see, Paul knew that people weren't going to like the things that he said up to this point. Up to this point, he had made it clear that good works, and obedience to God's law, and having a Jewish heritage, these things were not capable of earning salvation. 
And in anticipation of what people would say next, Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or of what value is there in circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Oh, that God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Let's stop right here. You keep your place in Romans chapter 3. So let's keep in mind, last week when we were in Romans, we saw that Paul made the point that, that a true Jew, that is someone who is truly one of God's people, that doesn't come about by heritage or birth or by ancestry. It comes about by faith. So now Paul responds to those Jews who would be quick to throw their hands up and say, what, so, so being a Jew doesn't matter? There is no point to it? There's no blessing? Paul says, no, it still mattered. And the advantage is that they had the very words of God. They had the truth of God. But the problem that Paul has been pointing out is that they didn't follow the truth. They didn't follow through in faith. They didn't have hearts that were circumcised. They were relying on their possession of the truth rather than faith in the truth. Now, before any Jews could turn around and say, whoa, so not every Jew is going to be saved. What, was God unfaithful to us then? Paul says, of course not. Your unfaithfulness to God does not negate his faithfulness to you. And God had been so faithful to lavish his goodness and his grace on Israel, to give them his promises and his word. But many of them failed to faithfully respond and believe in the Savior and look to him and him alone for salvation. Blaming God, that's so arrogant and ignorant of them. As one pastor said, the fault was solely theirs. But they wanted somebody to blame. And this thing, this thing that people do where we, we fail and then we blame God, this is it's old as time. Think back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when God's creation was very good, Adam and Eve walked in perfect harmony with one another and with God. Until the day came that they decided to take and eat forbidden fruit when they were tempted. They deemed the promises of sin to be better than the promises of God. And when God confronted Adam and Eve about their sin, Adam was quick to say, well, the woman that you put here with me, she, she took the fruit and gave me some and I ate it. And sure, Adam blamed Eve, that's true, but don't miss what he said. He said, as he pointed the finger at God, the woman that you put here with me, you put her here. And people have long tried to justify themselves by pointing the finger at God. 
And there are people who try and justify their unbelief by blaming God. And then there are people who try and make excuses to live in sin. You see, Paul also knew that there were those people out there who were saying things like this. Well, Paul, if, if salvation's really all about grace, forgiveness, and faith, if obedience can't save us, why obey God at all? I mean, after all, sin just magnifies the grace and the forgiveness of God. It makes his righteousness stand out in contrast to our weakness. Let's, it must be okay to live in sin. This is that whole idea that because of faith we're free to sin. Paul says their condemnation is just. And most of us, as believers, we read these things, we see these Rightly so. Which makes it even more sad that while we as believers were quick to look at the world of unbelievers and were quick to say, how could they? How could they do that? How could they justify their sin and, and make these excuses for unbelief despite all the truth that God has revealed? Yet how many times as God's people do we, even though we have his word and his promises and his forgiveness and his commands, how many times do we try and justify our sin or make excuses, believers? How many times are we like Adam? We might say something to God like, well, God, if you didn't make me like this, if you didn't put me in this situation or put this person in my life, I wouldn't be struggling like this. Or how many times do we look at God's goodness and say to ourselves, well, you know what? It's okay if I sin. Well, because God's grace and forgiveness are always available to me. Or we say, it's okay if I'm unfaithful because God's always going to be faithful to me. It's not going to lose my salvation. Have we ever... Have we ever done things like that, believers? Have we ever made excuses like that? Have we ever tried to justify our sin this way? Have we ever thought that because once we're saved, we're always saved, therefore it's okay to sin? Do we blame God? Do we blame others for our sin and our failures of faith? Look, we expect the world to be full of excuses for sin and for their lack of faith, but God's people shouldn't be. We are to live the way that the world does making the same excuses, justifying our sin. No, 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 this, this is how the world lives. Look at verse 9. Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A couple of years ago, in South Carolina, there was a federal investigation, and in the end, it resulted in a 147-count indictment being brought against 40 individuals. And these individuals were being charged with crimes ranging from orchestrating kidnappings and murder, robbery, extortion, arson, assault, Drug trafficking, including trafficking millions of dollars in drugs, money laundering, distributing firearms, and much more. 
In fact, the list of accusations against them was so long that the indictment was 101 pages. That's how much it took just to describe everything. And it was reported that all 40 defendants faced the potential of life in prison for these crimes. Can you imagine being there and hearing those 147 things read against you, knowing that life in prison was at stake? Well, in this passage of Scripture that we just read, we find what many have rightly referred to as Paul's indictment against the world. These charges that Paul brings, they apply to more than 40 people in a courtroom. No, in this indictment that Paul gives all people, Jews and Gentiles, who have now put their faith in Jesus, they stand guilty before God. And the sentence is an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And what are the accusations that he makes? To unbelievers, such as these people who make excuses to try and justify their unbelief, Paul says they stand guilty of failing to seek God, despite all the evidence that God has given. Now, some of you have been here throughout our sermon series, so you know that as Paul pointed out earlier, God gave his creation as evidence. He gave our consciences. Uh, the law written in our hearts to the Jews, the law written on paper. All these things point to him so that mankind is without excuse. But mankind tries to make excuses. And they don't seek him. They've turned away. They've turned away despite their best efforts, and despite their best efforts to be good people, but there's no good they can accomplish that would save them. The very words they speak reveal how wicked their hearts are. They take God's name in vain, they'll lie, they'll deceive, they reveal that they are spiritually dead inside. They walk a path of sin and destruction. They don't fear God. That is, they don't stand in great awe and reverence of Him or in holy fear of His righteous wrath for their unbelief. None are righteous. All stand guilty before God and are held under the power of sin. And it's as though Paul brings this list to say, do you really think, do you really think that after all of this you can, you can justify yourself? Do you make an excuse when you stand before God? And believers, here's the thing. This list that Paul gives, it does describe how our world lives. But does it describe how any of us are living as followers of Jesus Christ? These things that we've been forgiven of when we put our faith in Jesus, when we were set free from the power of sin, if we... Have we returned to any of these things? Have we stopped standing in the fear of God and holy fear of his discipline in our lives? Have we returned to talking the way that we once did when our mouths were filled with foul language and deceit and taking God's name in vain? Have we stopped seeking after our Savior to instead seek after the things that the world looks for? This indictment that Paul gives, these charges that he brings are directed at unbelievers, but I fear that some of these have come to describe many of those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. But we aren't supposed to live like this world, filled with evil and full of excuses. It's not how we're supposed to live. But then Paul says this in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So what's Paul been doing 
so far in chapter 3. What he does is he, he puts all the excuses that people make, he puts them to the side, he lays down the charges of sin, and now he looks at those people who would try and say that the law can save or that it can be freely disobeyed, and he says, neither of these things are true. No, no, no. Paul says the purpose of the law is to silence every mouth because we're going to stand accountable before God to make us conscious of sin. What's Paul mean by that? Back in high school, I had a friend whose family took a trip to Malaysia. I don't know why they went there. I don't know what they did. Even though he came and he told us this long story, there's only one thing that I really paid attention to that he said because he told us about this law in Malaysia, and and, and I remember hearing about it, and I thought to myself, that can't be real. That's not a real law. Because I said, how could anyone even know about that if they were there? So I looked it up, and sure enough, Malaysian law states this. It says, any person who spits in any coffee shop or eating house, school premises or public space, or in any trolley bus, omnibus, railway carriage, or other public conveyance, or in or near any public road, will be fined. That's the law. So you can be fined for spitting in public. And I know some of you, that wouldn't really be a worry anyways. But as a teenager, I remember thinking to myself, well, if I went there and I didn't know this law, I might break it and I wouldn't be aware of it. I mean, how would you ever know about this if you were in Malaysia unless someone told you the law, right? Look, Paul said earlier that God's law is written on the hearts of all people. And that's true. In the heart of every person, there's an innate understanding that certain things are certainly wrong, like lying, stealing, cheating, murder, okay? Just about everybody understands that. This should stir up in the heart of every person a desire to find the lawgiver, and that is God. But then when the day comes that we see the fullness of God's law, we're told about it, we read it in Scripture, we start to see just how much trouble we're really in. We may not have known the sinfulness of taking God's name in vain, in coveting, in harboring hateful and lustful thoughts, in refusing to show mercy. We may not have known these were sinful things until we were told what God's law is. I like how Paul put it later in chapter 7. In this letter to the Romans, he said, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law tells us what sin is. And Paul's whole point that he's been trying to get these people to understand is that the law tells us what sin is, not so that we can fight really hard to obey it and be saved, but so that we can see how much we need to be saved. That's the point of the law. And the reality that unbelievers, those who do not follow after Jesus Christ, the reality they need to recognize is that they are in bondage to sin. And they are headed for the penalty of breaking God's law, and no excuse will save them on that day that they stand before God in judgment. On that day, there will be no more justifying, no more pointing the finger, no excuses left. Only the just penalty for sin, which is to be separated forever from God in a place called hell. That's the bad news. And look, we can, we can make excuses, we can try and justify sin and unbelief, but the day will come that we stand before God to give an account, and then what? The law makes it clear, Jews and Gentiles alike, we all stand guilty before God, and we desperately need His grace and forgiveness. Instead of making excuses, people need to see the depths of their sinfulness and their need for saving. 
They need to fall before Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we shouldn't try and justify our sin. No, we, we have God's word. We have his law, his commands. We see how he wants us to live. And we ought to obey him out of a love and fear for him. We should choose to live for him. Church, the world is full of sin and excuses for sin. But this should not be true for God's people. Instead, we who have the blessing of God's word and his commands and his great grace, we should live in the fear of the Lord. That is, we should live in awe of his greatness, his goodness, his forgiveness and grace, without trying to take advantage of these things. We should also have a holy fear of his discipline, knowing that when we sin, we will face that discipline. But when we fall into sin, let's not, like the world, try and make excuses. No, let's run back to the arms of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Let's remember that the Bible says that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And church, remember this truth. The next time that any of us are tempted to make an excuse or justify the sinful things we've done, remember that excuses for sin define the world, but they should not define those who have been saved by grace. So church, let's be sure that excuses for sin are not found on our lips. And believers, let's understand that there are a lot of people out there who are trying to justify their sin and unbelief. And we should desire that we would be faithful to tell them that the only way they can be justified or made right in God's sight, the only way they can be forgiven and receive eternal life is through faith in Jesus Christ. As we prepare to close with a final song, if you're here and Jesus Christ is your Savior, I would encourage you to examine your heart. Are there areas you've been trying to justify sinful behavior that you know the Lord wants you to get out of your life? Are there excuses you've been making for your sin? Maybe some of us as followers of Jesus Christ need to go to the Lord in repentance. Maybe we need to ask Him for strength for things. Maybe some of us need to go to the Lord and ask Him to show us someone in our life, even today, that we could share the good news of the gospel with. And if you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, please understand that you, me, everyone in this room, we have all sinned on unbad things. We've all broken God's commands. I've never met somebody who didn't agree with that, but I have met a lot of people who try and make excuses for that. And you need to understand that no matter how you try and spin it, no matter what excuse you might give, that's not going to help you on the day that you stand before God. Neither are your good works, neither is going to church, given and saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve, to pay the penalty for us. And three days later, he powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He's the only one who can forgive us and save us. And right now, Jesus is standing in heaven waiting to do just that in your life, to forgive you of all your sin, to forget all your sin, to make you right in his sight, to bring you into the family of God, and to give you eternal life. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you have never done that, we want to give you the chance to do that before you leave. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Friend, if that's true for you, if you're here and you know that Jesus isn't your Savior, if you're here and, and you're not sure that when this life is over, God is going to welcome you into heaven with open arms. Friend, if that's true for you, please understand, during this final song, 
You can come and talk to me. We can pray about these things. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus, please know that you can do that. No matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through, you can go to Jesus in prayer and you can admit to him that you know you're a sinner, but that you know and believe he died on the cross for you and he rose from the dead. And friends, you can give him your life. And I promise you that he'll forgive you of all your sins and he'll give you eternal life. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who still hasn't made that decision, I pray that they wouldn't leave without talking to somebody. I pray that if there's somebody here who has chosen to give their life to Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't leave without telling somebody. And for those of us who have, Father, be with us in those moments when we are tempted to make excuses and justify our sin, when we know that these things are wrong. Instead, I pray that you would help us in the moments that we fail and fall into sin. Help us to be faithful to run to you for forgiveness. To draw near to you again. And I pray that you would help us, that you would give us a burden on our hearts every day we wake up to find someone we could share the gospel with. Because there are just so many people in our community who are relying on the wrong things who are hoping that their excuses are enough to get them to heaven. I pray we'd be faithful to be there to give them the truth. And we pray that in all these things, you would be glorified. Father, we love you. You proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.